So uh, we've been on this journey through the Gospel of Luke, and especially in Luke chapter 8, 9, and 10, you have a clear calling where Jesus is calling people to follow him. And before he calls anyone uh, to follow him, the key thing that we have to understand is Jesus displays who he is. He's trying to communicate who he is and his power and, and that he's more than a good teacher, that he's more than a good moral person, but he's actually God, that he's the one that can be trusted. He's the one that, that has all power and authority over nature, over winds and waves, over demons and over diseases, even over death. Jesus has power over those things. And after displaying his, his authority, his, his power, his supremacy over all these things, Jesus, he asked the question to his followers. He asked, hey, who do people say I am? And people have all sorts of opinions. And then his disciples, one of his disciples says this, Peter, well, he says, you are the Christ. You're the chosen one. You're the one that deserves all our attention. You're the one that was promised from, from, from the Old Testament. You're the one who came to accomplish God's will. You're it. And so we see that discipleship really begins with you understanding who Jesus is. You have to have a clear picture of who you are following in order for you to faithfully follow uh, the person of Jesus. But the next thing that we see is that it's not just about knowing who Jesus is, but it's knowing the cost of discipleship. It's knowing how to follow Jesus because Jesus says, for you to follow me, first you need to deny yourself, you need to take up your own cross, meaning you have to die to yourself, and lastly, you become a disciple. You follow me. So deny Die and be a disciple is the pathway of discipleship, of following Jesus. And last Sunday, we looked at this last section in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, where you have a few individuals who say, I want to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, that's great. Yeah, come, follow me. But then one guy says, well, but my father just passed away. I have to to." Bury my dead father, that was a way of saying that I have other priorities in my life. There's some important things I have to take care of, but after that, I'll follow you. And then one person says, well, let me go say goodbye to my family, and then I'll come follow you. And what's happening is they said with their own mouth that I want to follow you, but their heart is not with Jesus. They proclaim that they want to follow Jesus, but their lives are still stuck in, in their old ways. And they're, they're clinging to their old selves. And so what we learn from that that passage is that following Jesus, discipleship, is not just something that you do in your life. It's a priority in your life. It's the ultimate calling that God has placed on your life. Being a disciple, following Jesus, trusting him, learning his way, that is the primary thing that God is trying to do in your life. And in today's passage, what we learn is when Jesus calls us to follow him, he's not just teaching us his ways He's not just giving us his knowledge, but what we learn is that he's inviting us to be part of his ministry. He's inviting us to be part of his work. So the main idea for today's passage is this. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. Disciples of Jesus embrace the ministry and mission of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus embrace the mission and ministry of Jesus. Look at verse 1 in today's passage. It says this. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of them, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. 
Now, this should should sound familiar because back in chapter 9, this is how the chapter began. Uh, Jesus called 12 individuals. They called them apostles, and he sent them out with his authority, with his power to do his mission, to accomplish his work. And what we see in today's passage is the same thing is happening in in chapter 10, uh, that God has called these individuals. He's sending them out to accomplish his mission. It says at the end of verse 1, he sent these individuals into every town and place where he himself was planning to go. So he's not just sending them into random places. He's sending them to places where he was planning to go. It was his work field. He was planning to do different things in these cities, and yet Jesus says, wait, wait a minute. Instead of me going, let me send these individuals out. The only difference in today's passage is it's not 12, it's 72. So the number has increased. More people are selected to to follow Jesus, but also do the work of the ministry. And what we're going to see at the end of the gospel is that Jesus, he's not just going to invite 72 individuals, but he's going to invite everyone who's a faithful follower of Jesus to make disciples of all nations. And so the invitation to do the work of God, to be part of Jesus' ministry, is not just for the select few, it's for every faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Now we have a tendency to think that, hey, pastors get paid to do the work of the ministry. Well, we have leaders who are well-equipped and experienced to do the work of the ministry, But the Bible reminds us the work of the ministry, God's mission is accomplished through every Christian. Every believer has a responsibility to follow Jesus and to do the work of Jesus. So disciples of Jesus without excuse embraces the mission and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So how can we do this? How can we faithfully follow Jesus and embrace his mission and his ministry in our everyday life? How can we win people for Jesus? That's the question that I want to answer. But before that, we see in verse 1 that Jesus, he gathers the 72, he pairs them up two by two, and he sends them out. The reason why he would do this is because in the ancient world, for safety reasons, people would travel in pairs and groups. And so that's why at our youth retreat, we have a buddy system. It's safe for our, our, our youth. Uh, but also, it was, it's rooted in this Old Testament theology where if you wanted to accuse someone of their sin, if you wanted to bring an issue to court, you can't just testify against a person, you have to bring another witness. Two or three witnesses were required for you to speak of someone else's sin. And so when you are speaking the gospel, when you are sharing Jesus to other people, yeah, you are sharing good news to them, inviting them to follow Jesus. At the same time, before you share the good news, you have to talk about the bad news that's in their lives, the problem of sin. And so for accountability, also for faithfulness in, 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 in being a witness, Jesus sends these, these 72 out uh, two by two. But the first thing that he says before he dives into any other instruction, before he gives any practical application, he says the very first thing that you have to do is pray. So how do we embrace God's mission and ministry in our lives? Number one is we need to pray. We need to pray. Prayer. Uh, Look at verse 2. It says this. And he said to them, after gathering them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the workers, are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So prayer It's not just one of the spiritual disciplines that you need to grow in. It's not just a good tool to have when you are stuck in a situation. 
Prayer is the very engine that allows you to accomplish God's will in your life. Prayer is the very engine that empowers you to do all that God called you to do. That's why in verse 2 it says, Therefore, in light of all this, because the harvest is plentiful, you need to pray. So three reasons why we need to pray. Number one is this. We need to pray because the opportunity is great. The Bible says the harvest is plentiful. It's not that the harvest is just here, that there's some fruit that you can pick. But the Bible says that the harvest is plentiful. Now, I don't know if you've been to farms when they are in season. They have like peaches, apples. I literally have so much fruit on trees, right? And it's like, it's a field day. You go to tree to tree. You take uh, some fruit. You, you, you bite into some. And there's just so many fruit that you can enjoy and, and you can uh, labor. But also, you can take some home. And what the Bible is telling us is this, that right now, people are in season, People are ready for the harvest. You might think people are not ready to hear the gospel, but Jesus has a different opinion. He says that the field is ready. The harvest is plentiful. The opportunity is there. We need to pray because the opportunity is great. Number two, we need to pray because the need is great. The field is not the problem. The lack of workers, that's the problem. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. The opportunity is there, but the laborers are few. So pray for more laborers. Pray for more people to be invested into God's kingdom. Pray that more people will take their lives, leverage their lives, and live for the kingdom of God to make a difference in other people's lives and for the glory of God. We need to pray because the opportunity is great and also the need is great. Now, in America, probably in every corner, every block, we have a church But you just travel outside of America, and still there are 8 billion people in this world. 2 billion people never even heard the name of Jesus before. Like, we're not talking about people who are rejecting Jesus. We're talking about people who don't even have any Christian influence in their lives. Not a single church that they can go to. Not a single person that they can talk to if no one intentionally goes into those places. We call these people unreached people groups. That people who have less than 1% of believers in their area, their people group, their country. And here's the sad news. I heard this last year at a missions conference. What was said was, out of all the missionaries that are sent out in America, 99% of our missionaries are actually doing work in places that are already reached. Places that have churches. Places that have believers. And I'm not saying that That's a bad thing to do. I think it's great for us to partner and support other churches, nations, and fellow believers who are struggling, who are being persecuted for their faith. I think it's a great thing that we are investing in the lives of others among the nations. But the proportion, the resources that we have, like, again, it's not just the people, but the resources. 99% of, of the mission funds go to places that are already reached. And the reason why it's 99% versus 1% is because the unreached, they're unreached for a reason. David Platt says they're unreached because they're hard to reach, they're difficult to reach, and they're dangerous to reach. All the easy ones are taken already. And, and, and we are so excited that we can do a lot of work in the mission field, but still, the work is undone. The need is great, and the opportunity is rare. So what do we do? We pray. 
And you might say, well, how can we mere people make a difference when it comes to the harvest? And the last reason why you and I should pray earnestly is because God, he is the Lord of the harvest. He's not just calling this a harvest. He is the Lord. He is in control of this harvest. It says in verse 2, Therefore, pray earnestly to, to, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, not just any harvest, into his harvest. This is his field. This is his world. He created all things. All people are created in his image, and he has a plan to save them. And so he says, I send workers, laborers out to the field, the Lord of the harvest. He has control over our lives. He has control over the lives of the nations. That's why we have confidence when we go out. It's not in our own ability. It's not in our resources. It's because the Lord who has control over our lives has control over other people's lives. So you can never underestimate what God can do when he has control over their lives. So the Lord of the harvest, he tells us to pray because the need is great. The opportunity is great, and because he is the Lord of the harvest, that we should go and share the gospel, the good news, among the nations within the next generation. I think the next generation is a field, especially in America, where less and less people are willing to follow Jesus. And that's why we pray for our youth. We pray for our children because they really are missionaries. Uh, I mean, where else will our students actually learn that there is a Savior who loves them, who cares for them, and that there's a Savior who is so just and righteous that, that although he, he cannot uh, coexist with sin, he was willing to become, be, become sin and, and die on our behalf, make a way for sinners like you and me. How do you do that? Like, you do it through students, through youth who are willing to leverage their lives for the kingdom of God, not just to live for a grade, to live for something that's greater than themselves. Now, um, soccer season is back. Maybe some of you, you're playing sports in different capacities. Uh, um, at our church, the EMKM soccer game is a big deal. Like, uh, our year, like, is, is centered, uh, not centered around this event, but it just changes the tone of our year, right? We don't, like, fall is a season that we kind of start things new, and so, like, that's when our physical year starts, like, and so just... Winning the game and going to a new year is like just a great feeling. Now, um, I'm getting close to retirement. Uh, <laughs> as I'm playing, what I'm realizing is like, you know, when I was young, I played, you know, I played FIFA too, like games and like when I was a teenager too. So, and what I realized is soccer is fun when, you know, you're playing a game on a video uh, or, 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 or on a computer because you're playing with all these players who have great accuracy. You're playing with Messi, you're playing with Mbappe, all these different players. Every time you pass somewhere, they go exactly where you directed it. Now on the field, uh, you know how to play soccer, right? If a so, uh, side is crowded, you know that you have to swing the ball to the other side. I'm a defender, I look at the other side, I see someone wide open, Justin is wide open. I fix my eyes on Justin, I kick the ball. And what happens? I see the opportunity, I just, I just can't make it happen. I think the reason why God tells us to pray before we do anything is this. Because just knowing God's strategy and plan is not good enough. What good is it if we know the strategy but not have the strength to accomplish God's mission? What good is it if we know God's plan but don't know how to get the power to accomplish God's mission? Everyone knows that you have to make a disciple. 
that's a that's a call in our lives that we should go and, and evangelize and share our faith. The problem is we kind of know the strategy and the plan, but we don't rely on God's power and his strength. The lack of prayer displays the lack of trust that we have in God's power and his strength. But when we devote ourselves earnestly to prayer, what happens is no longer are we doing God's work according to our own ability. We are doing God's work with the grace and with the love and with the power and with his presence. We are equipped to do every good work. The opportunity is great. The need is great. And Jesus Christ, he himself is the Lord of the harvest. And he is sending us out to do the work of his ministry. So prayer is how you embrace God's mission and also his ministry. Number two is this. How do you embrace God's mission and ministry? Number two, trust and obey. Trust and obey. It says in verse three, go your way. Now this is so interesting because Jesus, he gathered the 72. He paired them up side by side. But after telling them to pray for, for workers, for laborers, to go out to the field, to, to work for the harvest, in verse 3, you notice that the guys who were praying were the ones who were going out. And so not only are we called to pray for our missionaries, we are called to be missionaries. We are called to live a life for his kingdom, for his glory. I, I love this. A lot of times we tend to separate, hey, the missionaries, they're doing the hard work in the field. We're staying back. We're supporting. We're praying. We're giving our resources. But no, the Bible says the people who are praying for the harvest are actually the ones who are going out to the harvest. And what we see is that it requires obedience, that we actually have to go. Now, some people would say, I just don't have any non-Christians in my life. Everyone I interact with, like, they're all believers. They all go to church. What do you do in that case? What do you do if all your friends are actually you know, believers? Number one, you should test that. Uh, because not everyone who claims to be a Christian really has a personal uh, relationship with Jesus. So I kind of like what Pastor Danny said last week. You know, Just because you go into a garage doesn't mean that you're a car. Just because you go to church doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Uh, but at the same time, I think the other thing is that we are so fixed in our bubble that we never go. And the Bible tells us, don't just stay here. Go. Go your way. Go out. But here's what happens in verse 3. When you go, here's what Jesus promises you. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. As lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, I don't know a lot about lambs and wolves. I do know in every children's story, uh, kid's story, that the wolf is always the bad guy. And it's for a reason, right? The big bad wolf. It's because wolves, they would do whatever it takes to destroy a lamb. That's why lambs, they need uh, some help. So you might be thinking, okay, the call to pray, I can do. The call to go, that sounds great. But I mean, Jesus, this is a bit much. You're telling me that there's a risk involved. Yes, the opportunity is great. Yes, the need is great. But you're saying also that the risk is great as well. And Jesus is saying, yeah, absolutely. But he's still sending us out. And the question is, how can you have confidence when you are a, a lamb, a sheep, and you are walking in this world that's full of wolves, that are trying, trying to devour you, destroy you, and take advantage of you. Well, you can walk confidently if you are a sheep with a shepherd. That's the key. When Jesus sends you out as a lamb in the midst of wolves, he's not just sending you out alone, 
But he promises that I will go with you, never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew 28. We know that Jesus is the great shepherd. So if you are lost sheep trying to evangelize, then I I don't like your chances. But if you are a sheep with a good shepherd, a great shepherd who can lead you and guide you, I like your chances. Like I like my chances. And and in Hebrews 13, this is how, how the book of Hebrews ends. It says this, Now may the God of peace who brought again the dead our Lord Jesus, the great Shepherd, so Jesus himself, Lord Jesus, is the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. He equips you with everything good that you may do his will. So you have a great shepherd who equips you so that you may do everything according to his will. And so what do you have to fear? He is the one who supplies everything that you need, that the strength perseverance, the endurance that you need, the clarity that you need, the wisdom that you need. The Bible says that he equips you. That word equip means he, he teaches you, he trains you so that you're not going to be devoured by all these wolves, but you would stand firm in your faith and be the worker that you were called to be through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So just remember, when Jesus sends you out, he's not sending you alone, but he is the great shepherd. So you can trust and obey him in the midst of danger. You can trust and obey him in the midst of danger. I believe this is why also Jesus says in verse 4, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. In other words, you don't have to carry all these bunch of stuff that you think will be helpful along this journey of faith. All you need is really me, the good shepherd, the great shepherd. Now, a lot of times when we think about doing the ministry of God, the mission of God, we feel like, okay, man, I need some Bible knowledge. Like, I don't know the Bible enough to share the gospel. You know, you might say, well, uh, I'm not theologically trained enough to share the gospel. You might say, well, I don't have enough experience. I don't have, have enough resources, money, time. I don't, I don't have uh, all those resources. I don't have a big enough house to host people so that I can make people comfortable and share the gospel. I don't have a good education. I can't keep up with all these intellectual arguments. I, I'm an introvert. Like, I hate people. Like, I can't do this. I can't talk to people. I don't have good people skills. Well, I don't have a personality that attracts people. And what Jesus says is this, well, I didn't call you because you had all those stuff. You're like a sheep, but you have a good shepherd. You have a great shepherd. So don't be afraid. Like you have enough. If you are a faithful follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you, you have enough to share the gospel. You know why? What saved you in the first place? If you don't know how to share your faith, could it be that you don't know what saved your faith, saved you like to begin with? What saved you? You might not have all the answers in the world, but if you know that there is a Savior who was willing to, to come into your life when you were a sinner, wretched, broken, lost in this world, and he was willing to make a difference by, sh- by, by shining light into your heart, by, by extending his grace, dying on the cross, and you were saved, then you know enough. If the gospel is sufficient to save you, then you know enough to share with that gospel with others. So the success of God's mission depends not in our own ability. It depends on our dependency to God. It depends on our dependency to God. He equips us with every good thing so that we will do his will. So trust and obey uh, Jesus in the midst of danger. Trust and obey 
in the midst of distractions. I think this is a big thing. In verse 4, at the end, it says, not only should you not carry all these things, but greet no one on the road. Now, this doesn't mean you are rude to other people, you ignore other people. Some of you might think, okay, man, this is a, this is a great verse that I, I love to put on my wall because I'm just going to put my, my AirPods in, I'm just going to go my way. I don't have to care of other people. No, that's not what Jesus is trying to say. What he's saying is this, when you are on a mission, you don't have time to get distracted with all these different things. Yes, if you are a civilian, if you meet your buddy at Target, at Walmart, then you're going to talk to that person, catch up with that person. But imagine you are part of secret services, and your role is to protect the president. As you are protecting the president, if you see your mom and dad or maybe a friend in the crowd, would you wave to them? Would you go talk to them? Like, would you greet them? Maybe you might give, like, a quick wink, maybe. But you can't be distracted, right? Like, you're focused on your job. A civilian is distracted, but a man on a mission, a woman on a mission, doesn't have time to be distracted. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Hey, if you are greeting everyone along the way and spending time, having a great time, just enjoying life with other people, you will never get to the destination that you have to go. And so keep the small talk short and get on with the mission. And so we see that we need to trust and obey in the midst of danger and also in the midst of distraction. So how can we faithfully embrace God's mission and his ministry? First, we pray. Second, we trust and obey. Number three is we, are, uh, we have to be relational. Be relational. That's the third thing. It says in verse 5, Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. Peace be to this house. That's a very standard greeting in, in the Jewish society, like shalom, like peace be to this house. In other words, when you step in, don't just get on with your agenda. I heard that uh, some of our youth, when they went to Pittsburgh, kind of did this, that uh, when they were doing street evangelism, the very first thing is that they would get into someone's face and then do you believe Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Or like, you know, they would just go and, and pull up a book, a wordless book, and go through the gospel. And that's great. I love the courage. I love the confidence. I think also knowing the situation, right, doing street evangelism, you don't have much time. People have places to go. But I think we have a tendency to make evangelism more of a project than about people. Like when we look at someone Instead of seeing them as a person who has feelings, who has emotions, who has thoughts, we are like, okay, this, is, this person is just a project that I need to fix. I need to I somehow like, get my message across. You're just focused on what you have to say to this person. And you know what happens when that, that's your mindset? When you share the gospel, you get into a debate. You get into an argument. You get, into, you get into a shouting match because what you're trying to do is prove the other person wrong. And what the Bible reminds us is that the person that you're dealing with is actually a person. So establish a relationship first. Jesus, his reputation among the Pharisees was that that guy is a friend of sinners. He was willing to spend so much time with sinners and broken people. He was willing to share meals with lost people that he was called a friend of sinners. And yet, what we know is that although he was close with sinners, he was inviting when it comes to sinners, we also know that he was very discerning as well. That just because he spent time with sinners didn't mean that he 
just learn their ways and, and became like one of them. No, like it was that they were spending time with Jesus and they became more like Jesus. So be relational. I think that's super important when it comes to evangelism. If you want to share the gospel in your workplace, in your classrooms, among your families, you have to spend time with people. Like one, one of the questions that I received in the missions training was this. Uh, I think it was a good question. How do you talk to someone who has um, a different religion, who believes in a different God, who has different thoughts and, and values than you? Uh, how do you talk to someone who is a Buddhist? How do you talk to someone who is a Muslim? Um, and yeah, it's true. It's helpful if you know like, a thing or two, how to talk to these person. But I think my answer was, was this. Well, you ask questions. Uh, you ask about their God. You ask about what they believe in salvation. You ask about their purpose in life. And, and, and what you do when you ask those questions is no longer are you presenting the gospel, you're actually having a gospel conversation. It's more interesting when you are willing to listen what they have to say. And after you hear all that, what you can do is, oh, that's very interesting, what you believe about that God, what you believe about in your religion. Can I share what the Bible says and what Christianity says? And so you have earned the right to be heard. I think the reason why people are often put off by Christians is because it seems like Christians are just willing to declare the truth without wanting to establish a relationship. So be relational, but the fourth thing is be discerning. Be discerning. Um, knowing that you, your mission is, yes, you want to be a friend to a sinner, but just his ultimate goal was to seek and save the lost. That he came to heal the sick and the broken. In the same way, you have to discern where you can have this gospel conversation. So first of all, be open, be friendly, be inviting, uh, be kind. And when you do this, it says in verse 6, this could happen. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. So people can take it or leave it. Your greeting. In verse 7, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For labor deserves his wage. Do not go from house to house. In other words, if they're inviting, if they are open to what you have to say, spend some more time with them. Go into their homes. Share a meal with them. Verse 8, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in, in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. I think verse 8 is another way that you're establishing a relationship experiencing their culture, sharing a meal. I think this is really helpful when you actually go to a mission trip overseas, when you begin to speak their language, when you begin to understand their culture and share in their food. I think that's a great way that you're displaying that, you know, I want to have a, relational, uh, a relationship with you. At the same time, it says in verse 9, make sure that you display the kingdom of God and declare the kingdom of God. Heal the sick, heal the broken, but also make sure that you declare that the kingdom of God has come near to you. In other words, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So we love people, we welcome people, but at the same time, we have to be different than people. We have to display the kingdom of God. Something has to be unique about us, and also we have to declare the message of God clearly. We can't water down the gospel and say, oh, by the way, God loves you. Would you want to believe in God? They're going to be saying, yeah, sure, I want to believe in God. But you never mentioned the problem of sin, why they need a Savior. Right? Sometimes you have to bring the hard truth. You have to be loving in your attitude, but clear and honest when it comes to the message of the gospel. In verse 10, it says, this is what you do when people reject you. 
So far, we looked at what you do when people accept you, verse 10, when people reject you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So a clear warning uh, and also a, a, a command to just kind of walk away in a way, right? Um, instead of doing anything, making a scene, if people reject you, the simple command is that you go out in the streets and you just get rid of the dust on, on your feet. In other words, you just kind of move on to the next person, move on to the next house, move on to the next place. You don't have to be discouraged, hurt by people rejecting you. Um, and, but clearly tell them that judgment is coming, that the Sodom that was destroyed in Genesis, like, because they were living in sin. And we know what happened. Like Literally, sulfur came down from heaven. And what we see is, is that there will be a day when something worse is going hap- to happen to a town that's unrepentant. So two reasons why you don't have to be discouraged when someone rejects you. Number one is because judgment is clearly coming, that we'll know who's right at the end. Now, there's a very funny passage that we kind of skipped in chapter 9. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 51 to 56, there's an incident where Jesus, he is going um, to Jerusalem, but at the same time, he's going through Samaria. And so um, he's trying to enter a village in Samaria. But this time, he's not welcomed. People reject him. And if you look at verse 54, it says, James and John, two of his disciples, the two that wanted to be great, they come up to Jesus, and this is what they say. Hey, Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven to, to destroy these people? That, that's their solution to their rejection. Like, Jesus, I don't like how they treated you. And... and and we can bring fire down like Elijah and destroy these people right now. Like, let's go. A lot of times, that's, that's how we feel when we get rejected, when we share the gospel, right? When people hurt you, people say, I'm not interested in you. Like, we walk away and we're like, oh, man, that hurts. Like, oh, man, I'm so discouraged. Like, and we, we want to curse people. We want to, like, you know, say bad things to people. But notice, when the disciples were speaking in this way, Jesus, he rebukes them. He turns to them and says, no, no, no. Judgment is coming. You don't have to ask for fire right now. Fire will eventually come. But till that day, you and I, our mission is to save as many people as possible, not to bring judgment upon this world. Now, judgment is absolutely here. It says in verse 13 to 15 that you know, God's final judgment is going to be a real one and a serious one. Um, and he's mentioning all these different cities. Uh, it literally says at the end, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heavens? In verse 15, you shall be brought down to Hades. Hades is, a, really, is, 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 is kind of a word for hell. And so what you see is clear judgment. But another reason why you don't have to be discouraged when you share the gospel is, is this. It's because when people reject you, and I, I heard a couple of our youth say this when they're sharing their testimony, they're not rejecting necessarily you as a person. They're rejecting the one who sent you. They're rejecting Christ in you. And we get that from verse 16. It says, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects whom has sent me. And so 
We don't get the credit when someone comes to Jesus. We don't get the blame when someone doesn't come to Jesus. We're simply a messenger. People can take it. People can leave it. There is an urgent matter where judgment is coming. Uh, We have to have the heart of compassion to reach people. At the same time, we don't get bogged down and discouraged when people reject us because we're not the first people to get rejected. Jesus, he says that people reject me first. But notice how I'm responding by still sharing the gospel. If they reject me in this village, I'm going to move on and share the gospel. Until judgment day comes, I'm going to be about people. I'm gonna, my mission is to save people, save the lost. And I think the same heart we should have as well. Notice prayer, trust and obey, relational and discerning. Those are things that Jesus did from day one in his ministry. He's not asking us to do something new. He himself lived a life of prayer. He himself often withdrew from the crowd, it says in Luke 5, to pray alone. He woke up early to pray in the morning. Sometimes he would spend all night to pray. That's how he appointed the 12 apostles. That's how he did the miracle of feeding the 5,000. He took a loaf of bread, some fish, and he prayed a prayer of thanksgiving. And when he prayed, the bread multiplied. That's how he went to the cross because before the cross, there was the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed, asking the Father to give him the power to accomplish his will. Just his life was driven by prayer. The next thing that we see is that he trusts the Father, that he was obedient to the Father to the point where he is praying for his disciples in John 17. He says that, Father, everything that you told me to do, like I accomplished The son does nothing apart from the father. It is my joy to do the father's will. He was obedient and he trusts the father to the point of death. The last words that he uttered was, to you, God, I give my spirit. A cry of trust, trusting in the one who is the Lord of the harvest. He was relational to the point where he was called a friend of sinners. At the same time, he was so discerning because he didn't just follow people into sin. He led people into righteousness. So if we have this chief great shepherd, then we have to follow his footsteps. And so practically, the question that you and I have to ask is, what's your field? What area of the field have God sent you For our youth, I just want to encourage you that you're not just there at school to be a student. You're sent by God to be light and to be salt to a world that is dying. When God sends us to a workplace, we're not just there to earn a paycheck. God has sent us to make a difference, to declare and display his kingdom. When God has left us in a household that is full of non-believers. Just know that you're not left behind, but you are actually sent to make a difference in the midst of that brokenness. God will make a difference if you are willing to pray, trust, obey, and follow his plan with his strength, knowing that he is the Lord of the harvest. Amen? Let's pray.